And then when it comes to presenting, I think there is an instinct to jump into presenting and that we sort of throw away those moments where, you know, I think really good presenters, they settle the audience, right? So if you watch a really good presenter, you go, oh yeah, I feel really comfortable with this person or I'm in safe hands or you've already got a feeling, right? Like you, you, you've been transported to a different place. They pull you in to the feeling of where they want to take you. And you can do that in a virtual environment. Welcome to How I Work, a show about the tactics used by the world's most successful people to get so much out of their day. I'm your host, Dr. Amantha Imbar. I'm an organizational psychologist, the founder of behavioral science consultancy Inventium, and I'm obsessed with finding ways to optimize my workday. Now, if you're a regular listener to the show, you'll know that something I've been doing lately is reaching out to some of my favorite guests from the past because I've been curious as to how has the way that they work changed as a result of COVID and being in lockdown. So today, my guest, and I'm so excited to have her back on because I loved our first chat, is Rachel Botsman. Rachel is a world-renowned expert on technology and trust and is the author of two best-selling books. Her first book was called What's Mine Is Yours, which was all about collaborative consumption. And her second book, Who Can You Trust, explores how technology is transforming trust and what this means for life, work, and how we do business. Rachel is also a trust fellow at Oxford University and has been recognized as one of the most creative people in business by Fast Company and is one of the 50 most influential management thinkers in the world. She's also the host of the podcast Trust Issues, which if you haven't listened to, it's definitely worth checking out. Rachel is a great interviewer and gets amazing guests. And also where you might have come across Rachel is via her TED Talks, which has been viewed by literally millions of people. So in today's chat, I had planned to talk to Rachel about how the way that she is approaching her work has changed. She uh, is based over in the UK and is definitely still in lockdown. But where we ended up going is actually having a big discussion about the design of virtual experiences. So Rachel delivers a lot of virtual experiences in the form of keynotes, workshops, and her teaching at Oxford. And she has been thinking a lot about this. So I think if you're doing this kind of thing for work, maybe you're designing meetings or presentations or any kind of situation where you're gathering people in the virtual world, you will definitely get some really cool practical tips from this interview. I know that after doing this interview with Rachel, I started to redesign how I was thinking about things like keynotes and workshop facilitation and that kind of thing. So on that note, let's go to Rachel to hear about how she is thinking about the design of virtual experiences. Rachel, welcome back to How I Work. Thank you for having me. I feel like what was it? Two, three years ago? I reckon it was, it was two years ago. You were, um, yeah, one of the first guests that I had on the show and here we are, I think like, you know, over a million downloads later and, you know, like so much of that interview really stuck with me, particularly 
our chat around how you design presentations, which I do, I do want to circle back to. And I think for anyone listening at the moment that is in the business of creating presentations to present ideas and persuade people of certain ways of thinking, I, I think, you know, going back to that interview, that was um, just amazing hearing you talk about that process. I mean, you're an amazing speaker and just understanding what goes on behind the scenes. I love that. But I want to paint a picture because you're on the opposite side of the world to me. So can you tell me what life is like for you right now and how long you've Mm -hmm. been in lockdown isolation? Yeah. So, um, well, since we last spoke, I've moved, well, my whole family has moved to um, Oxford in England. And so we're very lucky in the sense that I would find it very hard being in London right now. So Oxford, we have the countryside. It is quite peaceful because it's a place where people walk and they cycle. So I feel very fortunate from that perspective. <laughs> what is life in London? So lockdown started, I think, mid-March. And well, I remember the moment where I knew we were in for something epic. Um, I had, it was early February, and I got on um, a plane to go to New York and I was on the plane. And as I got off the plane, I was going to give um, a talk to Goldman Sachs, to the CEO and the partners who were flying in from the world, uh, around the world. And I was very excited because it was with um, Sachin Adela, who's a CEO I really respect. And I put tons of work into this. And then I got off the plane. I was like, uh, it has been canceled due to um, COVID, feel free to turn around and go back. And I was like, well, I'm not going to get back across the Atlantic. Um, so I had some other things to do in New York. And, but nothing, you know, nothing had changed. Everyone was in the restaurants. Um, I had some publishers meetings. No one was talking about it. But what was in my head was Goldman have access to information about markets and movements that very few people are privileged to. So what do they know that I don't know? And I sort of became a bit obsessed by this. So I think by the time, you know, everyone went away skiing in half term and I thought this, this isn't right. Um, so I think I was mentally prepared for it by the time it had happened because I just felt it was inevitable. So yeah, life in lockdown, like for most people, um, every day is very different, uh, partly because of the children. Um, I have a a six-year-old and an eight-year-old. And one of the things that I had to really adjust to um, was not just homeschooling and the practicalities of it, but that, you know, when I work, I very much go into a bubble. Um, I, I, I love just being in my bubble. And my day was very much informed by their emotional temperament, uh, which would change by the minute. So that was really hard to accept, to be honest, in the beginning. And I would get very frustrated that I couldn't find any periods for immersion. So I, and I had a a full teaching term ahead of me. So I, I had to design and teach an entire course online. So it was challenging. And I think now we found, I don't want to say some harmony, um, but we found some structure that works for them. We found some boundaries, um, but they invented them, not me, which was really important. And I think we've all found some space, which has been like helping them find space has been really interesting. So my six-year-old is 
massively into podcasts the woman needs to hear um i think she listens to like four or five a day which at first i was like you can't listen to that much and i'm like you know what who cares and which my, podcast because my six-year-old yeah. is addicted to audiobooks so what are the podcasts that your six-year-old is listening to oh um she loves the guy ras uh uh wow at the world um, she loves, um, this is so weird. She loves how I built this. I think she just loves Guy Ras actually, because they're always awesome. he's got a great voice. Yeah. But she, she comes down and she goes, do you know how Ben and Jerry's like invented their ice cream? Well, it wasn't going to be ice cream. It was going to be bagels. And so, you know, at first I thought this is terrible. I have to be teaching how to count. She can't read. And then I'm like, just let go. Do you know what I mean? Like, if she finds a thing, whatever the thing is, that's completely wonderful. So, um, and then my, my son's thing is he's been learning how to code. So he's um, learning, he loves Minecraft, but he's learning the code behind Minecraft, how to create the game. So, uh, yeah, wow. so that's, that's life in lockdown. <laughs> oh my gosh. And look, we might circle back to parenting and homeschooling a, a bit later on. We're really lucky in Australia because school's just started again. So fingers crossed it continues. But um, before we started recording, we, we, we were talking about how something that, that you're really passionate about is, is around the design of experiences. And I feel like 99% of the world is terrible at this. And like mm. rather than death by PowerPoint, we're now experiencing death by Zoom. And so you're, you're, you're teaching, you've moved your curriculum online. And I imagine like me, you're probably doing a lot of virtual keynote delivery now as well. And so I'm curious, wh wh wherever you want to start with this, like how are you thinking about designing these virtual experiences? So maybe if I break this up because I think it's actually important that there is a difference between teaching, facilitating and pure delivery. And I think the most important word you use is design, which I think, I don't think mean how things look, but uh, how you design an experience, the thought people would put into, you know, in a live event from the lighting to the stage set to, uh, the temperature in the room to the music to, to how everyone feels, right? Like I feel like everyone got slightly obsessed with their zoom backdrops. And then that was about it, you know, and, and I'm guilty, but everyone has a fig leaf plant in the background and a pile of books, right? But, um, <laughs> that's the cosmetic. I mean, fig leaf plants, that's the business to be in. right? Totally. So teaching, let's start with teaching. Hmm. Um, just to give you the context. So I have 80 students they were all told pretty quickly they had to go home. They didn't even pack. They left their dorms. They left their, you know, so many of them had families here. They jumped on planes all over the world, right in the middle of their uh, graduate degrees. So I mainly have MBAs and they were all in different time zones. The way we teach at Oxford, uh, we teach in three hour and 15 minute blocks. <laughs> yeah. well, that's Which very precise really hard in the long. <laughs> it's really long um and you know the only well the way, only way i can teach in the classroom that way is is highly experiential right like i i read people's faces we play what i call tennis in the classroom um, not physically with balls but with ideas um there is room for 
silence and um, reflection. And I had 48 hours because I was the first course to go online to figure out how I was going to do this. And my first reaction was, well, honestly, shit. And then my second reaction was, how am I going to keep the kids out of the room? So to create that space. And then I should shorten the classes. Like they were all my knee jerk reactions. And I always say, you know, you sort of have to let that, what I described the emotional whoosh to happen um, and not react to it and then come up with a plan. And I decided that I wasn't going to try to replicate. I was going to reinvent and that I was going to think about time. I was going to think about um, content. I was going to think about interactions um, completely differently. And, you know, the first thing was practical, right? So when you join these platforms, and I think I've been on like seven different platforms right now being asked to, you know, go from <laughs> Zoom to blue jeans to whatever it is. It's like getting in a new car and, you know, you know how to drive, but you're like, where, where's the gear stick? Where's, oh, there's no key. It's a switch. Um, and the first thing I say is before you even teach or you deliver it, how to use all the tools has to be completely intuitive because you're trying to manage delivery. You're trying to manage people and their experience and then all the tools as well. So me and my team, we, we, we spent ages like immersing ourselves, testing each other, doing live runs, testing polls, breakout rooms so that by the time I got to delivery, I could, I didn't need to think, Oh, how do I share screen? How do I launch this? So that was a very practical thing. The thing that I, if I had to think of three things, so I've probably done now over 80 hours, I think of, wow, it's a lot. Um, if I have to think of my top three learnings and we can go into any one of these, the first is how do you create space for learning? Mm. What I mean by that is that I've experienced this when I've been watching cultural programming, amazing cultural programming, whether it's coming at the Lincoln Center or whether I've been watching webinars in a virtual setting, you tend to have this very like one way direct thing. Like I'm going to talk at you and then you're going to answer a few questions, which is still really one way. So how do you create the space and the permission for people to look down and to think? Because looking directly at someone, no one does that in a conversation. It's a very unhealthy eye lock. So giving people permission to say, you know what, I don't care if you don't look at me for the next three hours. Um, I'd love you to have your screen on, but that's not an expectation. Or I play a song, so music has become a really important part of my class where, you know, if I want them to think about a point for three minutes, if we all sat there in silence for three minutes, it would feel really awkward. But a three-minute song gives everyone that kind of structure and permission to... Um, think and look down. So how do you give permission to people to think and how can you use signals? For me, it's music um, to do that. The second is participation. So I think one of the worrying things about virtual settings is it amplifies the extroverts and it really pushes out the introverts. It took me to class two to realize why I was seeing all the same students on the 
screen because you know if you've got 80 students you're never going to see them on the home screen I was like why do I always see the same students and of course it's because they're the first ones to put their videos on and they're the first ones to speak or interact and so the algorithm puts them higher up so I realized by class three there were about 30 students I didn't even know they were in the class so I consciously had to go through to my fourth screen and call on them um, and give them a voice so being very aware in large group settings of the people who are silenced uh, quite literally by the algorithm and who you're going to see, I think was the second really big insight. Um, and then the third is feeling like you can still let go. So um, I feel like what works for me in the classroom and on stage is I have a plan, but I let go and I let the audience or the class go where they want to go. And I think you, you need more confidence in virtual settings to do that. But if people take it in an interesting direction, being very clear to people, you are now handing over the reins. You need to do, in a virtual setting, I found you have to signal very clearly, um, Tyler, like that's really interesting. Could you talk about that for a few minutes? Um, so I'm now handing the class over to you um, so they're really the three things is, is how do you create space for insight and reflection? How do you make sure the extroverts don't amplify out the voices? Um, and then how do you, when you're handing over and letting go, how do you really clearly signal that? Um, I could go on and on and on, but they, they are the three things in the teaching context that have been key. And then in the presenting context, it's completely different again. I want to maybe like go into the, presenting context because I feel like there would be lots of listeners that you know having to do presentations where you know whether that be you know possibly not as professional keynote speakers but certainly presenting information or ideas mm -hmm. or strategies to their team or their organization so talk me through how you're thinking about presentations in the virtual world yeah so um <laughs> <laughs> to, be to be fair, it's up and down. So some um, I'm finding quite enjoyable, like when there is an element of interaction, it is very hard to uh, just deliver a keynote, uh, particularly in some of these platforms because of GDPR, you can't see an audience. So the first thing I'd say is not precious, but be particular about your environment. If you need to see people, you have to figure out a way to see people. Otherwise, how are you going to create that energy and connection? The number of times I've gone on and asked the organizers, um, can I see the audience view? Because the presenter view or the speaker view is different from what your audience sees. So even going through that exercise and going, oh, I see, they see me like that big, like a stamp. And then they see the presentation really big it really helps you get in the mindset um, and also saying, actually, I'd rather be bigger than the presentation or whatever it is. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you're designing, right? You're giving them instructions for the very best possible setup. Mm -hmm. And then when it comes to presenting, I think there is an instinct to jump into presenting and that we sort of throw away those moments where you know, I think really good presenters, they settle the audience, right? So if you watch a really good presenter, you go, oh, yeah, I feel really comfortable with this person or I'm in safe hands or 
you've already got a feeling, right? Like you, you, you've been transported to a different place. They pull you in to the feeling of where they want to take you. And you can do that in a virtual environment, right? So don't jump. Hello, my name is Rachel Botsman. I'm an author and trust fellow at Oxford University, right? That's presentation mode. I'm now going to share my screen and we are going to talk about trust and I'm going to go through three points and then there'll be a Q&A, right? Now I'm amping it up, but that's what we do, right? And we yeah. tend to talk really loudly and quickly for the first two minutes. So settling people in, like this takes time and you can do it online and even sitting there smiling at people and not speaking can be really powerful. Um, asking a few people where they are in the world, thinking about the feeling you want to create. So do you want a lot of energy? Do you want uh, calmness? Do you want whatever it is? What's the feeling? So I think that's really key. And then when you're in presenting mode, you know, you, you don't have your body and you don't have the usual props so how you use your voice and how you use pauses and intonation becomes even more important. So uh, it's like imagining that you've got your hands tied behind your back and that really your expression has to come from your chest, not your throat. So I think also being very aware of where you're speaking from um, still really applies in a, in a virtual setting. I could go on, but I'll stop there. Cause I feel like I'm walking. No, this is, this is fantastic. <laughs> I, I want to delve in. I'm really interested in the idea of, of settling people in. And I want to know, you know, in that first minute or two, like what are some of the strategies that you've been using to create certain moods and making people feel settled? It's so different. So to a completely new audience, I think you have to be a bit careful about sharing a highly personal story that you think is funny, but it's kind of like you're at home anyway. Right. So that was a bit intimate. Um, so, you know, very safe ways. Um, I will run a poll sometimes. So I'll run a poll that is really about the way people are feeling. So if it's something on, um, you know, a lot of people are worried about what to say, how do you communicate as a leader or a brand or ask a question like, are you most worried that something you say will be irrelevant, inauthentic or insensitive? And then they vote. And it's an amazing way to get a read on the group, right? So you can go, wow, for 80% of you, it's about insensitivity. And then suddenly it's become about them, right? And then if it's a smaller setting, you can ask people. So you could say, anyone who votes for insensitivity, could you just uh, share why you pick that above the other two and then already they're interacting with you right so you've got out of that one-way mode so the poll is a brilliant tool but making it quite personal and about them I found is a really good uh, kickoff tool I think it's something th the hardest one is when something dramatic or I don't even like the something big has happened in the world that day. How do you acknowledge that without them going, oh God, we're going to have, a, you know, like it's going to be another conversation. Like, so you want to feel like you're creating space, but you have to nod to it. So I think sometimes what I do is rather than talk about, say, 
um, Cummings or Floyd or I'll say like, or acknowledge how I feel. Um, so I'll acknowledge the feeling. So I think that's, that's really tricky. Um, with audiences where I know them or the host knows me really well, I might share um, a story that's not funny, but there is an element of vulnerability. So I might, I shared a lot of stories about homeschooling um, and you have to be careful with that one as well, right? Because you're not trying to divide an audience. I've seen a lot of, well, I'm a parent and I, you know, it's okay you being alone um, and you have to be careful you're not doing that with your story. What you're saying is, you know, so I, I tell a story of my, my son decided that the school should pay me to teach him. And then um, <laughs> so I said, you know, oh, my son this morning said, asked me if my, the school should, are paying me to teach him. And, and then I told him that I was paying the school still, which he thought was rather strange. So he told me he'd pay me a pound a day. So that's my worth, everyone, right? That's, you're going to get someone who's worth a pound a day. Um, now, it's kind of funny, right? But what you're doing is you're creating a vulnerability signal and that's one of the most powerful things you can do without being emotionally flooded. So I think this is really important that you are still presenting, you are still leading this audience somewhere and they need to feel like you're in control. So I've had a really bad day. I hate my children. You know, um, I don't know how we're going to get through this, but I'm really pleased to be with you. Again, um, <laughs> I'm exaggerating, but I am seeing all of this, right? Like, so you have to be in control, but you can and you should signal vulnerability. Uh, and that's a really powerful connector. So there, there's some pretty uh, obvious ones, but they are incredibly effective. I love those examples. They're, they're great. And just how, how kind of concrete they are. Um, I'm interested in poll questions. I think that's such a, a, such an interesting example that you give. And I can imagine that it's, it's actually very interesting to see the answers as opposed to a poll question that you kind of know what to expect. And I want to know for you, like, because I think a lot of people use poll questions, but they don't use them in a particularly good way or thoughtful way. So for you, how do you go about crafting a good poll question? That's a good question itself. So yeah, with poll questions, it's either something where you're like, are you really asking me everyone to comment on Trump or something like <laughs> where it's uncomfortable, right? Cause it's not an appropriate question. So avoid those. Um, or it's not open-ended. So you know, they know the answer, right? So I think the first thing is, are you genuinely interested in the answer um, is the first mm -hmm. litmus test. Um, are you going to be surprised how people respond? Um, so I always think about that. And then somehow it's, you're trying to engage heart and head, right? So it, it's, if it takes them, if they immediately respond, there's probably something slightly off in the question, but if you're asking them, so the communications one is really interesting, right? Because they probably feel all of those things, but you're asking them to pick their primary fear. Like what are they most frightened of? So it, it creates a delay. So I think that's really important in the design of the question. And then the most important thing is that the question leads you somewhere. So the question, the poll can't just be like a warm up exercise. It's your, it's your bridge or it's your spring into your content. So Oh, that's really, so if it's an internal meeting and you've run a poll 
and something comes up, you're using it as stimulus or insight. And then you, you go from there um, is really important. What I'm curious is like, I guess it sets a really good picture for how you're starting your presentations. And I feel like I can get this really clear idea of what the first few minutes would be like if I was in one of your virtual audiences. I now want to look at well, what about the body of the presentation? Because I remember when we spoke two years ago, I was fascinated to hear about all the work and the discipline that goes into you crafting your keynotes and kind of to, to probably do a really bad kind of job of summarizing it, or almost like the way I remember it from when we spoke is it's almost like you've got all these little modules and then each of the modules goes in folders and it's all like actually very <laughs> organized. Um, and then you'll kind of think about, almost like what are the building blocks in terms of the modules to to kind of craft the message that you think is going to serve the audience best in terms of the outcomes that you're there to deliver. And I guess the, you know, the, the challenge and, you know, something I think about like in terms of delivering keynotes in the virtual world is that it's very easy. And, and what I see a lot of presenters do is to just go into one-way communication mode. Like maybe they've done a great setup and they've actually thought about what their first impression is going to be, but then they almost go into lecture mode. And, you know, and like we, we know from research into the, the brain and how the brain processes information, like it, it just, it gets bored after 10 minutes of one-way communication. And then I feel like you've got, you know, people just tokenistically using things like polls, but not in a very thoughtful way. And I'm, and I'm, curious as to what is what are some of the methods that you've been thinking about and that have been working really well for you to kind of I guess almost like for me I think about it as almost feeling like a conversation with the audience like something I've loved about virtual keynotes and I've got to say oh like I'm absolutely loving the virtual keynote world is that I could have the chat box open for the whole keynote and like normally you have no idea what your audience are thinking other than the very, you know, like the, the verbals and the non-verbals that you're kind of observing in the room. But I just encourage people to just write to me on chat. If something kind of that I say mm. triggers something in them and I think that it will serve the group with me kind of incorporating that in, I'll just incorporate that in. And it feels kind of nice to be hearing the inner, log, inner monologue from the audience and then incorporating that into whatever I'm, you know, kind of saying or, or riffing on. So yeah, tell me about like what, what's been working for you. That's, it's really interesting. You like the chat because I, um, so this is, I, I don't like the chat. Um, hmm. and, um, <laughs> but I never, ever turn the chat off. Um, I think this is a learning. If you turn chat off, people will find another channel. So, um, but you can, uh, this is actually really important. You can, you should create a culture. You should create values and norms. Um, so this is less in online presenting, but I think it really applies to internal cultures. You know, be, how do you want people to use that chat? So you like people asking you questions. Um, I like people to raise their hand, to use the blue mm. icon, right? So that um, I can time it and I know when I want to call on them. I guess in the, the, the main body of the content, my system hasn't changed, so I still have um, <laughs> modules and sets and then uh, little folders. Um, the, the funny thing, the strange thing is um, I have not been productive in my writing, but I have been, I would say, uh, content is flowing out of me in terms of design and thinking about concepts like risk and transparency and distrust uh, that have been in my work for a long time, but the new stuff that is 
bubbling up. Um, so the, the poor designer I work with, she's like, well, could you just stop, stop? <laughs> like, um, <laughs> so, so I still go like, you know, uh, right. So we've got an hour and I want to make sure out of that hour, you know, about half is us having conversation. So what do I do with the content pieces? So I think even, um, so one of the things I do, I just realized I can't draw it because it's audio, right? Um, is I draw <laughs> a line and then the line has an hour on it. And then um, each end has a bookend. This is how I design an hour session. Stop me if this isn't interesting. This um, is and fascinating. <laughs> the first uh, five minutes I call settling in, right? So some people will call that housekeeping, but that's a horrible way because it's actually a really important part of the experience. So uh, I, who's going to introduce me? Um, are they going to have a holding slide? Or am I, do I need a holding slide? What's the first thing people are going to see? So those first five minutes are very, very detailed. How's the person going to hand over to me? All that stuff. And then I think in usually... 10 to 15 minute blocks so 15 minutes is actually quite long so 10 minutes um what is a big question or what is a core idea that i want them to take away from this 10 minutes and that's what we're focused on and then i'll land it in some way so the landing might be an opportunity to ask questions um, the landing might be getting them to do some kind of um, insight exercise. So um, I've now given you some ideas around this. Uh, how does that apply to your role? All right, let's take a couple of minutes to think about that. And then I think very carefully about how do I segue into the next section, right? So now if you imagine on our line, we've got like five minutes settling in, 10 minutes, interaction zone, bridge, next section, bridge, next section and then <laughs> five minutes of close and then the five minutes of close you know you want to avoid that rush at the end um thanks everyone this has been great oh, i've run out of time all right everyone press leave um so <laughs> you know, um you're wrapping it up and again you're wrapping up the feeling and so i you know i, I do an exercise called big picture little deed uh, where um, I get people to think about what's what's the thing that has changed your perspective on something? Uh, what do you see? Maybe you see something differently, but you're not sure what you're going to do with it right now. And then your little deed is something practical you can put into action tomorrow. And then when I can, I ask people to share what those things are. So I'm still really geeky <laughs> in that. Um, I think around blocks and modules and then I can, and the wonderful thing then is I can use my same system, right? As I use in public speaking is I can pull that set of content, but you need less slides. You need really bold slides and they are a backdrop. Um, they are not a crutch, which is really important still. They are not the thing people should be focusing on. Can you talk about the end five minutes? I want to dig in there. So big picture, little deed. Uh, I love that idea. What else are you thinking about with that final five minutes? Usually it's what I'm trying to create is some kind of shift, if that makes sense. So, you know, there's this, there's this saying, I'm sure you've heard that some, you're either a preacher or a teacher. Um, you know, some speakers are really good preachers. 
Simon Sinek is a preacher. Brené Brown is a preacher. Elizabeth Gilbert is a preacher. And that isn't, what they do is amazing. They will emotionally move you um, to the point of tears. I, I can't do that. Like I can't, um, I don't think I've ever made an audience cry. <laughs> like, like, it's not who I am, but I am a teacher. And so I can move people, but more in the sense of, oh, I see that differently now. Um, or I can't think about that in the same way. Um, or that's really in my head. And so I think a successful session is when you hear afterwards, I went away and then I shared that with my team or um, my God, why had I never thought of that? So, you know, that's why sort of selfishly the big picture little deed is, is really useful because it's a feedback tool, right? So you're like, wow, I didn't, I didn't think my point on consistency was a big point, but this seems to be a big point. Um, why? And then that become, so I did a session the other day where I was talking about the difference between clarity and transparency. And at the end, everyone was talking about it. And I was like, I thought this was really obvious. Um, <laughs> but then you've got stimulus, right? And then you're really excited because then you're like, okay, I'll take something work there and I'm going to take that into my next session. And, and this is really important actually that to keep the energy, you have to feel like you're discovering you know, like that you're exploring and that you're learning and that every presentation you're getting better and you're giving that audience more. That's so cool. That's so cool. Um, I'm like, I'm looking at the time and I'm like, where, where did this hour go? I've got no idea. I've I, like 10 minutes of me trying to fix the microphone. That yeah, was... Well, there was, there was that, <laughs> but like, I just, oh, I just, I've so enjoyed this, like in terms of just going into the detail around how you're thinking about things. And everybody, this is unexpected. I thought, oh, let's have a chat about how your ways of work have changed, which were, you know, very fascinating two years ago. But I, this is, um, I've just loved this. And I personally have picked up a lot of ideas selfishly that, uh, that I think I'm going to apply to how, how I'm designing um, virtual experiences. I, I just, uh, I've loved hearing about this and I love the detail that you go into and just how thoughtful you are. Um, and look, my, my final question for you is how, like for people that want to learn more about what you're doing and, and consume the, the thoughts that you're putting into the world, where, where is the best place for, for people to be doing that and accessing that? So I am writing a uh, biweekly newsletter called Rethink and it's pretty in depth, I think, for a newsletter. It's on LinkedIn and it's really trying to take a topic, a fortnight that is coming up for people. And not, I don't want to say getting beyond the narrative, but um, so I, I've, I've written one this week on uh, what I call trust states. So how do you, how you figure out what to say really relates to people's relationship to uncertainty and the trust state they're in and how you pick up on those signals, I think is, is really important in a virtual environment. So that's, that's the best place to really dive into the thinking. Um, and I'm actually working on, um, I'm working on two things. One is um, this Google doc that goes from uh, day one of uh, teaching online. So everything from, like breakout rooms, like everything we learn about breakout rooms, you know, that you assign a discussion leader 
uh, well, duh, right? Like, but we didn't think of that. So people, who's, who's leading the discussion, right? Well, you, you can control that. You could put a name in. Um, so Google Doc, that's like literally everything that we learn. And then and I just want to give it to people. And then um, I'm working on a virtual design doc. Um, so how you design these experiences, because I realized, you know, these tools where you, mapping tools of how do you map an hour? How do you map three hours? might be useful to other people. So hopefully they'll be available in the next couple of weeks um, if they can help. You know, amazing. A few amazing. We'll, we'll probably be releasing this episode probably in two or three weeks. So I'll, I'll chase you for those links um, because they sound like they're going to be invaluable resources for people. you probably had it did you hear the knock in the middle i was quite proud of my um did you hear it no i didn't oh so um my my kids right they invented all these like little things so they made a sign when they really couldn't come in uh which is up right now and then if they really need something when the sign is up because no one else is home they have to knock three times right <laughs> and then if I don't answer it means I really can't answer them so if they it's life or death they have to knock another three times <laughs> and he only knocked three times and went away so I was like oh I'm so proud of him he's not he's not dying so he's figured it out he's probably hungry or something <laughs> and that was, you know that's life in lockdown right not three times and if you're really really dying knock another three times and then i'll come out (laughs) so do you want a lesson on parenting now (laughs) (laughs) oh gosh rachel it's been so great having you on again thank you so much for sharing all those um brilliant insights thank you a pound a day rachel (laughs) definitely got our money's worth today (laughs) take care thanks so much hello there that is it for today's show if you know someone that could benefit from some of these really cool tips that rachel shared why not share this episode um with people there's a little share icon wherever you listen to this podcast and uh, all you have to do is hit that and send it to whoever you think could benefit and as always if you're enjoying how i work i'd love it if you could take some time just a few seconds to leave a review in apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this podcast so that is it for today and i'll see you next time